Welcome back, friends. Hope you're all doing very, very well. We're going to talk about salt and sodium today. And this is from a listener question that I got in the Instagram DMs. Um, so we're going to cover the question, kind of some of the intricacies around salt and sodium for health and performance. I'd say that's probably a good title for the podcast, Brian. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, if you have the question there, you can read it out. Um, hmm. or it was pretty long, I think, but you know, obviously, uh, it it frames it frames the podcast discussion nicely. So if you want to crack that out, um, then we can get into it. I will indeed. Um, so it was Fakra that asked it. Asked it. So thank you very much, Fakra. Um, so he says it was supposed to go into a question box sticker but there was obviously not enough room so an area i would love to hear more about is salt what its functions are what are the main sources in the diet packaged food sauces table salt what are the potential negative health impacts on too much salt how much salt should we be consuming factoring in weight activity levels how to measure our salt intake ways to ensure that salt intake is at healthful as healthful level as possible um and then he just kind of mentioned that he was very interested in the topic and wanted to hear our opinions. So we're going to talk about it today. Um, there's, there's some nuances to the, the salt discussion. And we're going, to, we're going to talk about it from a health perspective. But then there's obviously extra considerations around performance and athletes. And, you know, I suppose a good place to start is to kind of talk about you know, what's, what's actually, what's salt and what's sodium, right. To, to start. Okay. Because, you know, depending on, on who's listening, uh, they may not have a good definition of the difference between like salt and sodium and what's the functions, right? So salt is essentially sodium chloride. So it's basically a molecule of sodium combined, uh, with a molecule of chloride. And that's essentially just how you, how you get salt essentially. So the conversion then between salt and sodium is for one gram of salt, it's about 400 milligrams of sodium. So that's kind of the conversion. There's loads of calculators online. If you are someone that is concerned about your salt intake in relation to hypertension, high blood pressure, which is going to be a big topic of conversation in the podcast, that's how you do it there. You, you would convert one gram to 400 megs um, or vice versa. And you can look up the calculators online. But I suppose with that in mind, then what is actually like, why do we, why do we need salt? Like what's, what's the function of salt inside the body? So salt is an electrolyte, which is a mineral that in concert with other minerals in your diet, such as potassium particularly, but also things like calcium and magnesium, they have, functions inside the body that involve electrical charges. So not to get too sciencey, it's basically just because we're full of electricity as humans is kind of how a lot of the, the functions in our body work, the actual electrochemical signals, the electrolytes, these minerals, the sodium, the potassium, calcium, magnesium, they have these functions because they're electrically charged either in the case of these electrolytes, they are um, positively charged, but then there's some other ones that are negatively charged, but we're just going to talk about these for today. So, in the context of sodium and potassium, because they're electrically charged, what this allows us to do is basically what I'm doing right now with my hands. So I'm moving my body and what's happening is there is a little signal that's coming from my brain down through my spinal cord. And this is called an action potential. And basically what's happening here is 
there is a diffusion between sodium and potassium, which is the two electrolytes that is creating this electrochemical signal, which is allowing me to move my hands and do all the different things that I do. And that's kind of a very simplistic view of it, but that is the general function of electrolytes in this case, sodium and potassium, but also some of the other ones that I mentioned. And then the secondary function is fluid balance inside your body. So basically these electrolytes uh, basically uh, regulate the fluid in around your, your bloodstream and they have different functions with, re with regards to what your kidney does. And it's just essentially the difference between water retention and water excretion and different things like this. And that's kind of the main two functions of sodium. And then as a consequence in concert with, with potassium, and that's why we need them. So they are necessary, but there are extra considerations to be made because with a lot of nutrients, with, with I suppose really any nutrient and any compound, if we have these things in excess, problems start to occur. And this is kind of where the discussion around salt and high blood pressure and its effect, negative effects that it has on health start to come into the fray because in our current dietary patterns, the standard American diet or the Western diet, whatever you want to call it, there's more salt in it than there would have been, you know, say if we look 150 years ago, 200 years ago, as, as things start to become more industrialized, the production of food, etc., there's more salt added to food in terms of the, the, the processing. So, um, Brian, do you want to kind of jump in there and talk a little bit about, um, maybe like bl blood pressure and kind of its relation to salt and, and uh, uh, sodium? Yeah, nice and Dean. Yeah. So, like that is the main consideration when it comes to sodium or salt intake um, in the diet is that it can have this influence on your blood pressure, right? And I'm sure everyone is aware listening to this that you know higher higher blood pressure is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Okay, um, so the higher your blood pressure is chronically, the the more at risk you are of of having a cardiovascular event. You know that's not good if you want to you know live until you're 120 like we all do in triage right and um, like we want for our clients so that's that's where the, the the salt discussion comes in really because um it's shown that you know with increasing levels of sodium and salt intake this tends to increase blood pressure right which is then increasing your risk of of cardiovascular disease okay um you know the the healthy kind of marker for blood pressure is like 120 over 80 um you know and, and it can have some variation like below that as well but you know, above that is where you start to get increased risk um and then you're at high risk if, if it's if it's sitting around 140 over 90 okay um so this is why it's important to consider salt and as you said there there's a lot of salt in the diet these days um and therefore it is worth it's one of these dietary factors that's worth looking at if you want to um, preserve the health of the population. Okay. Um, and like uh, we need to consider, right. I think this is something that gets lost a lot or people, when, when, when people talk about salt intake in their diet, they're like, okay, well, I don't add that much salt to my food, so I'm probably fine. And the reality of it is that the, the vast majority of, sodium intake in a westernized country like in ireland for example 
um, is mostly coming from processed foods and also bread a lot of the time. So if you look at the kind of the, the national national adult nutrition survey data in Ireland, that's that's the they're the main contributors. And we say processed foods like these are things that have sodium added, like basically to enhance the flavor. Like that's one of the main functions it can have from a from a food science point of view, um, and then also as a preservative um, to to make food you know last longer and prevent spoilage. Um, so this is where most of our sodium intake is coming from. It's coming from processed foods, um, you know, fast foods, um, packaged meals and sauces and uh, general sn snacks and things like that. They're, they're all major contributors to sodium in the diet. Um, and like the, the recommended intakes of salt or sodium. So it's, it's recommended that from this heart health point of view and blood pressure point of view that um less than five six grams of salt per day which again if you, if you multiply you know uh five to six thousand milligrams by, by 0.4 then you'll get the the sodium content there which is going to be about 2000 to 2400 milligrams of sodium per day they're, they're the recommendations um for the population at large to es essentially support healthier blood pressure and therefore reduce that risk of cardiovascular disease. So that's what you're looking at. And like I said, it's really important to get that point that it's not just about adding salt like to your food. Like just because you don't add much salt to your food doesn't mean that your sodium intake isn't potentially high or, you know, it is, is higher than it should be. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because for me, like I actually do consume certain foods and I recommend certain foods that are useful to clients. So things like the, um, the pre-made soups that you get out of little, mm. the packets of chicken and ham, you know, the, the deli meats. And those are useful in terms of their utility. If we take like chicken for the packets of chicken, very convenient way of getting high quality protein into your diet. If you're in a pension, you can't cook something. Same thing with the with the soups. You're getting the nutrients from the soups in there, but the problem is that they do add, obviously, because of their the the nature of them being processed is there's more salt added to them, right? Um, so it is kind of this. Some of the foods, even like things like the sauces, they can be useful because they enhance the taste, but also the nutrient profile of your diet overall. But because of the processing, they can add salt. So it is some if you're consuming a lot of these different types of foods. Um, it is something to consider, uh, especially if you have a history of, of high blood pressure in, um, in your family, because I think Alan Flanagan, which we, we get a lot of our information around salt and, and the research around salt and the public health slash epidemiology around the, the subject, he calls the sort of the salt high blood pressure conversation a cousin to the LDL cholesterol cardiovascular conversation they're kind of like cousins um which is it which is really interesting because an interesting way of putting it because in the same way you can have a genetic predisposition to high cholesterol you can also have a gene genetic predisposition to to higher blood pressure um and if that's the case then it's going to be particularly important for you to put some attention into this discussion around salt um, and the salt slash sodium inside your foods um but as i say there are there are going to be some funny little overlaps it's not just right you've ate a load of crisps and okay that's probably contributing quite heavily to your salt intake but 
then if you're having like a little bit of processed meat that's helping you hit your protein goals or a little bit of soup that's helping you improve the nutrient profile of your diet while also being convenient, you know, there's, there's certain things that you, that you can juggle there. Um, but I suppose like Faker asked, what's kind of a way for us to measure the amount of sodium and, and salt in our diet? Well, I think the best way, if you're, if you're really serious about it, is to simply just use a, a MyFitnessPal tracker um, and, and log all your foods in bar maybe like the the fruit and veg because there's not going to be much salt um in them is actually going to be a higher contribution of potassium which we'll talk about in a moment but you know if you're a lot of the, the typical processed foods um that you're that you're adding to your diet if you track them most of the time provided the entry is good in in the in the my fitness pal if it's a verified or if it's if you add usda to to some of the entries it can add it can add accuracy and it can give you the correct sodium values for um for what you're tracking and by doing that then you can sort of get an idea of right what's my general um what's my general intake of sodium and you're probably best to do this on more than one days you know across like maybe a week five days or a week because this is something that Alan actually tackles in his uh, some of the research reviews around public health and the salt conversation is some of the issues with the research is the fact that they take a 24-hour urinary excretion of, of sodium. And that's fine, but it doesn't actually give you the full picture on how much sodium you're, you're, you're consuming across a longer period of time. Because some days you might be consuming less salt, some days you might be consuming some more salt. And in a, in a similar way that we care about more of the weekly averages in terms of weight and calories, if it was a fat loss client, it's the same, it's the same concept with regards to your salt intake. You're better off kind of getting averages across a week or, or longer to sort of see, right, where am I generally sitting in terms of my, my sodium intake? And you can do that through my fitness pal approach, as well as the fact that you want to make sure that you're, you're adding in your sauces and your fat sources like butter and stuff like that, which is going to have extra salt Mm -hmm. and obviously any salting of food as well. You know, if you're, if you're, if if you're adding salt and pepper to your, to your eggs in the morning for scrambled eggs, as an example, you want to make sure that you're adding that as well. Um, And, you know, you can, you can weigh some of these out. Like, you know, obviously if you're only putting in a little tiny pinch of salt, it's, it's not going to add massive amounts, but if you say, right, in this recipe, it requires half a teaspoon of salt, you probably should add that to the, to the values as well. Um, and, you know, again, if you have a history of, uh, of high blood pressure in your family, um, this is definitely uh, a thing to, con- to, to take seriously. And then also, like, if you go to the doctor and you check your blood pressure and your blood pressure is in those values that Brian mentioned in terms of being over 120, over 80, then, yeah, like, it's, it's probably going to be a good idea for you to, to, to consider this as something worth tracking in your diet to see, right, are, am I above that level of five to six grams uh, of salt per day? or 2,000 to 2,400 milligrams of sodium per day. And if I am, and I have history of high blood pressure in my family, and you know, when I go to the doctor, my blood pressure is a little bit high, or if you're tracking it yourself at home with one of your own bands, then maybe it's a good idea to take this a bit more seriously and see if you can reduce the salt in, in your diet, which of course, we'll talk about more in, in a moment. Yeah, yeah, no, all very good points. Um, like, like blood pressure is one of those markers that you can easily keep an eye on and it's really really telling in terms of um of your health your health overall so we like to use that um in coaching you know uh, we like we like to monitor monitor it ourselves as well and like personally i don't think that you should be just waiting for your 
you know, annual or biannual checkup in the doctor to monitor your blood pressure, right? Because you're, you're also subject to potentially white coat syndrome there where you get an elevation in blood pressure because you're in the doctor's office getting your health reviewed and you're a little bit more stressed about that. And then you're waiting to see, oh, what's my blood pressure result going to be? So I think it's, it's a much, it's, it's smart to have a, a monitor at home. And I think, I think you should, you should have a good idea of where your blood pressure is sitting at, you know? And again, it's like kind of like the, the sodium excretion that you mentioned, like I, I wouldn't take, you know, one blood pressure reading in, in a six month period as being, very informative you know so you know every maybe every month or every couple of months take your blood pressure like you know three or four times in the week and then see where it's at and that'll give you a decent idea of of where it actually is because as far as i'm concerned like having a like unless like you just do it every six months or every year with the doctor and it's like and it's fine that's like okay that's that's obviously pretty convincing but um i think people should have a, a better understanding and yeah back to the the kind of tracking and monitoring of your, of your sodium and salt intake it's yeah it's, it's not that easy to do um and like you said we're gonna we're gonna talk about some actual interventions that are like principles that will ensure potentially a lower sodium intake in your diet but like even with even with tracking some with something like my fitness pal like as you said you need to be careful with the entries because like the 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 user database in my fitness pal is managed by the users right hmm. so what you will often see because like we, we review uh food diaries every single day of the week basically when we're, we're doing check-ins right so we're very accustomed to this but what you'll see is that because the database is user managed like me or dean go on to my fitness pal and maybe we're not that considerate we're not nutritionists in this um alternate situation and we say, oh, cool, I'm going to enter in this food because when I scanned it, it didn't pop up. So I'm going to, I'm going to plug it in myself, do my bit for the, my fitness pal community. Um, I'm going to put in the calories. I'm going to put in protein, fat, carbs, and kind of fuck the rest, right? So people will often not input anything else. So you often see like fiber data missing is a very common one. Um, so when I'm looking at people's fiber intakes, it's like, Okay, it looks on the face of it, it looks low because then I see their their average fiber intake. But then when I go into their look their food diary, it's like, oh, okay, well they're just not getting any credit for these berries here because they're just input as having like it's there's no fiber data input or this whole grain bread is just like it's just the data is not there because the person who input it was like ah fuck it, it's not that that's not important. And I do find that's the case especially as well with with sodium. So I find it quite unreliable to use my fitness pal to track this unless you're very very um conscious of the 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 food the foods that you enter um like dean said if they're verified you have a better chance um but you know it, it might be better to just be more old school about it and just look at what you're eating in the day check the packets and the labels for the sodium content because you don't really have to consider it too much from unprocessed foods right because basically and we'll talk more about this like they're basically not going to have much at all on the line of a sodium contribution so it's really like only stuff that actually has a label for you to read um will be relevant uh, and then you should be able to get like a proxy on what your salt intake is as dean said like if you're only using a little pinch of salt you know um in in cooking or seasoning yeah it's probably not contributing that much and like i already said 
the vast majority of your sodium intake is likely coming from processed foods already. You know, if you do eat those foods or eat breads and things like that. Um, so yeah, I think like the, the addition of salt to food is quite a small contributor, unless you're in one of these camps that is, is massively pushing huge salt intakes, which you see, right. And we should talk about that as well, because this is something I want to speak to on the back of what you said and, and the, the kind of the points that Alan raises, like Alan's excellent and we've definitely learned a lot from him and not just in this uh, context, but like in this context now for this discussion, it's like the, the concept of this, I, uh, the concept that too low salt intake is as bad for you as too high, right? This is an argument made in, in certain dogmatic nutrition communities, um, usually like low carb, uh, kind of keto, carnivore, especially groups, you know, people who are fond of these fad diets, essentially, um, are, are sort of pushing people to consume lots and lots of salt and sodium, right? And they're like, it's fine. Um, and they use, they try and use this data to say, oh, it's, you know, it's a J-shaped curve, which, you know, means that, uh, you know, the, the health impact when your sodium intake is too low is, is oh, it's bad for you. And then there's a sweet spot. And then if it gets too high, it's also bad for you. But the reality is, and then Dean, you already mentioned this, is that that 20, like that 21, 24 hour sodium excretion is not enough to give you a clear picture of someone's actual sodium intake. And once you look at studies that do multiple um, assessments of sodium excretion, that apparent correlation goes away and then it becomes more of a linear situation where more salt in the diet equals a worse health outcome basically right that's fair to say mm -hmm. yeah for sure like it's um there are a lot of misconceptions around it such as that um i think one of the more convincing one of the things that convinced me a lot, obviously, in terms of what Alan was saying in, in his research reviews and his video lectures around this is uh, when, when they actually do uh, an analysis perspective cohort studies across populations um, in places like Japan in the 1950s, where they had really high salt intakes and then they actually had public health guidelines brought in to reduce the, um, the amount of salt that, that people were eating, you see direct correlations to the reduction in, in cardiovascular events and stuff like that. Um, as well as other studies involving um, from like a historical uh, perspective in terms of looking at the diets of old, you know, in terms of our you know, ancestral, uh, our ancestors, what they were eating. And it seems to be that those diets were, even though the, some of those zealots would say, no, it's, they, they used to consume loads of salt. And it's like, it seems to be apparent that they used to consume less than a thousand milligrams. Um, of salt per day so yeah. um so, so there is, a lot of is that where, where is that actually coming from like why are they just saying that oh yeah your ancestors ate loads of salt so yeah. you should have a teaspoon of salt before you go and train like all this yeah. sort of shit it's like do you ever do you ever see um i don't think it was might have been david attenborough but you know those goats that climb the that scale the the dam have you ever seen that they're they're not goats they're ibex so there's these basically there's these yeah. ibex which are a variation of a goat essentially and they scale these dams and like these fucking dams are like basically as close to vertical as you could get um it's mad like it's actually you should look this up on youtube if you're if uh, pause the podcast but make sure you come back to it obviously and <laughs> finish it but look it up on youtube ibex scaling dams to basically lick these minerals out of the 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 
the minerals that's coming out of this dam. Um, so that's what our ancestors used to do. They used to just lick these salt rocks all day. And that's where the salt has come from. Um, no, that's bullshit. I'm not joking. Um, but yeah, a lot of misconceptions around it. Another misconception, which I'm going to admit right now, this is something that I said for years. I believed for a long time that sodium was actually, you don't even have to care about it, provided that you consume loads of potassium. Right. And I, I said, I said this to people for years. This is something I believed because I heard it from people that are otherwise very reputable. People like Mike Isratel, um, and I'm pretty sure Lane Norton might have even said it at one stage, uh, that you know, you can totally alleviate any negative consequences of a high sodium diet with high potassium. So if you're consuming lots of fruit and vegetables. And while that does seem to be the case in terms of potassium does help to regulate some of the negative outcomes of high sodium and salt, it seems to be for the best possible outcomes, you need to combine high potassium with lower sodium or, you know, in around that below that RDA of five to six grams of salt. Um, and this is kind of where another aspect of this comes in where people are not consuming enough potassium either because the RDA of potassium is 3,500 to 4,700 milligrams daily. And people are definitely not getting that most of the time. Um, and this is obviously going to affect uh, health overall, but especially within the context of this uh, uh, blood pressure uh, conversation that we're talking about here. And the way you get those that, that intake of potassium is just going to be from consuming lots of plants, specifically like fruit and veg. That's going to be kind of your, your main sources of potassium. The, the ones that you kind of know, your bananas, avocados, potatoes, um, foods that you know are especially good and any 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 concentrated tomato products so like tomato puree is extremely potassium dense um and then you get like quite a lot in sort of canned tomatoes um yeah pomegranates are really good as well for potassium mm. uh some dried fruits again because they're because they're concentrated again the, the, also the potassium is concentrated so something like dried apricots are, are super um super dense in potassium too but sorry go on yeah, it's like as, as you're saying, like a lot of those plant-based fruits and vegetables. Potatoes, that's, that's actually. Where... Sorry, to interrupt yeah. again. White uh, white potatoes. Are uh, potatoes already. Oh, did you? Sorry. Oh my. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not. You're not listening. I am listening. <laughs> I just missed that one somehow. You were looking at a, a squirrel on the tree outside. You know that episode of The Simpsons where Homer was like, "Oh my God, look at the squirrel." That's what you were yeah. doing whenever I was talking about the potatoes. Um, Except the squirrel if, in this case is uh, someone doing a driving lesson. Well. <laughs> doing driving lessons uh, around my state here. If Richie was here, he would definitely not have tuned out whenever he heard the word potato because he is the potato king after all. Yeah. Um, so, little plug for that episode, by the way. Go and check out our podcast with Richie. It's one of the, I think it's one of the most listened ones. It's a, it's a whopper. Oh, cool. um, but yeah, back to what I was saying there. Like uh, potassium, yes, absolutely. You need to get more potassium in your diet chances are you're not consuming enough. Um, you can obviously you integrate things like low salt in your diet. So low salt is essentially 66% potassium, 33% sodium. So if you do salt your food and you want to sort of reduce the amount of sodium in your diet, but increase the potassium, as we're saying, low salt is, a, is, is an effective way of doing that. Um, but I, I, again, I think trying to get more potassium from plant-based foods is going to be much more uh, efficacious because you're obviously going to be getting your fiber and all the other great stuff that we are preaching all the time about uh, consuming more plants. Um, but yeah, that's kind of one of the things that I used to believe 
quite heavily. And uh, it's only really in the last couple of years that since uh, reading Alan's content and stuff like that, that I'm sort of like, okay, right. I was horribly wrong about this. You need to make sure that you're, especially as I say, if yeah. high blood pressure is an issue for you, um, you need to be sort of taking this a lot more seriously and just don't worry about the salt, consume a repotassium and you'd be fine. Like, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. so, you know, and that's, uh, I think that is one of the things that I've changed my mind on in mm. the last couple of years, as well as a couple of other things. I think we should probably do a yeah, podcast on things, things we've uh, changed our mind on. Um, but that's one of the big ones for sure. Um, so yeah, is there anything else around that before we move on to the next kind of subsection of this? No, uh, I think that that covers it. Like, yeah, people definitely should be eating more potassium for, for many, many reasons, right? It's, it's very good for your health. The foods that contain potassium are very good for your health. Um, did I mention, I don't think anyone mentioned that white potatoes are a really good source of potassium. <laughs> but no, nah, like these plant foods, like they're really good for you. So try and increase your potassium intake for sure. Um, as you said, the low salt can be really useful. Um, low salt is a brand. You get it in the salt section of uh, like brand supermarkets. I don't think Aldi and, and Lidl have a version of low salt as far as I'm aware. Um, and like places like Tesco sell this low salt, Duns, Wood, Super Value. Um, Tesco also have their own version. Like they have a Tesco brand low salt. It's not quite the same ratios, I don't think. I think it might be like, 55 45 or even 50 50 potassium chloride and sodium chloride um now i think like if you're going to add salt to your food i think that's a great way right because you're just gonna you're just gonna end up consuming more potassium um as standard but that's not really going to solve the problem if your sodium intake is already high from consuming a lot of processed foods because like i've said a couple of times already it's not really going to be the added salt that you put on your meals that's going to give you your most the most of your sodium intake right so um i think low salt is great i think just just have that as your if you're adding salt to food and and it's, this is going to become more relevant in a, a little bit later in this discussion but um yeah you do have to essentially look at not consuming as much packaged and processed foods and like dean said at the start you know we're not at all opposed to recommending some of these foods because excuse me, they are uh, very convenient um, and they will help you with certain targets. So it's like, you know, if, if me and if Dean and I are recommending, hey, just get some store-bought soup, right? It's a real easy way to get more vegetables in. It's like, yes, that also comes with its own amount of sodium as well because it's a, a processed packaged food, essentially. And it's like, okay, well, this person is increasing their veg intake and they're also consuming salt as a result. So it's like, where's the net? result there and it's, it's hard to pin down and it's obviously depends on where you are at in your whole lifestyle and diet all right and and maybe these predispositions to potentially having high blood pressure or familial high blood pressure so once i'm gonna i'm gonna set you up now for the next section dean so get ready you mentioned you know i agree i'm it, this is one thing that i've changed my mind on as well uh very recently and and you mentioned the likes of Lane Norton and Mike Gisretel, you know, uh, saying basically, you know, you can eat essentially as much salt as you want as long as your potassium intake is high enough. And um, we know that's not really true. Um, so, but th both of those guys train a lot. All right. So I want to make an assumption that some of their inherent biases creep into this because nobody is unbiased, right? We all do our best, but we all have 
certain amounts of bias in when we're talking about this stuff. Those guys train a lot. So how might that influence their viewpoint on this and maybe the populations that they work with? Yeah, so there's an extra consideration if you're an athlete and you're training a lot, because if you are training, you're going to be sweating more, right? And par, a component of your sweat is these electrolytes that we've been talking about, sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium. Now, magnesium, calcium, and then some of those other smaller electrolytes, and even potassium to a degree, there's actually a much smaller proportion of those coming out in your salt than there is sodium. Um, but as it stands, if you're sweating more because you're training more, you're going to be uh, excreting more sodium out of your body than the average sedentary person. And this is especially true for those of you that train quite hard for quite long periods of time. Potentially you are just someone that sweats a lot. You're a profusely sweating person. Um, and then obviously if you're, if you're training in humid environments, you know, this is kind of one of the things, uh, as we kind of move in for that, for that two and a half week period during the summer where we actually get some nice weather. Um, you know, this is kind of where me and Brian have to start saying to people, yeah, you need to be drinking more water and maybe consider, uh, you know, before you're training, having a little bit of an electrolyte supplement or something like that, just to attenuate, um, the fact that you might be sweating a little bit more because of the humidity and the heat. Um, but if you are that type of person, and, and as we said, some of these people like Mike Estratel or Leon Norton, who are quite heavily involved in bodybuilding and Mike is also a jiu-jitsu athlete. You know, if you're somebody that's doing that kind of hard training consistently for long periods of time in a hot environment, you're going to need more salt um, in, in, in your diet potentially because you're excreting more. Um, and as you said, Brian, before the, the podcast, you mentioned a, a case study of a, uh, an athlete, CrossFit athlete that you had and she was consuming a very clean diet. And then you found that, right, you're not, you're not actually uh, consuming enough salt here. And whenever that was added into the diet, um, she actually seen an improvement in her performance. Um, because as I say, sodium has, it's, it's important from a perspective of your nerves being able to communicate with each other, that action potential that I, that I spoke about. Um, that's kind of a big part of the sodium and potassium, um, the electrolytes. So think of elect, so electro, electrical si uh, signaling there. And um, that's kind of the key with those uh, minerals. Um, so that's obviously very important from that perspective, but then also the regulation of fluid inside the body. So water retention versus excretion. So you might've heard as an example of this, when we have a dysregulation or if this sort of, uh, if your fluid balance is out of whack, basically um, a really good example of this is hyponatremia. So you might've seen like marathon runners uh, collapsing or taking, um, or sorry, having negative things happen to them basically from over consuming fluid during a marathon. Um, and in some cases there has been a couple of cases of people dying. There's also been cases of a, uh, radio shows doing competitions that involve people drinking stupid amounts of water and they end up dying as well uh, because what happened what happens is the swelling goes on in the brain and that's actually because the proportion of sodium in your blood plasma gets too low so that's actually hyponatremia is a big part of that is because the concentration of sodium in in your in your body is too low and it creates these issues with 
you know, potentially you, you could have like a, a swelling in the brain um, or a buildup of fluid in the lungs. And this is kind of what creates these events where people need to be taken to hospital or unfortunately in some cases die. Um, so this is a consideration for athletes because sodium and potassium are important for hydrating, keeping you hydrated. Like plain water is actually not a really good drink to hydrate you. You're actually going to be better off with a Luxid sport or with some milk or with some orange juice or something that has these electrolytes inside them. Or, you know, as I say, you can supplement with noon, high five, your light, whatever it may be. And these, these are considerations for athletes because from when we look on, on average, you can lose between 500 to 600 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat, uh, depending on the person. Obviously, it's going to be less for some, more for others. Um, and, you know, if, if you're training in a hot environment and you're training for long periods of time, like an endurance athlete or, or maybe a footballer, this could actually rack up to a fair bit of sodium being excreted. Um, and if you're not replacing this with more sodium uh, or salt, then you're going to see potential detriments to your performance. Um and, you know, this is kind of, as I say, Brian's, Brian's client, which you can talk about um, in a moment, but also things like cramps as well. Like I've had a few clients where they're like, I'm fucking cramping like anything here in the gym. It's like, right, just see, see your pre-workout meal, a little bit of salt to it there. And even just like a little bit of salt is oftentimes enough to, to stop um, people from cramping up, basically, uh, because that's kind of one of the things that happens sometimes. If you're, if you're eating a very clean diet with no salt in it, it, it can sort of create these issues for you if you're exercising um but yeah is there anything you want to add there brian in terms of that before i jump into another couple of recommendations around fluid and electrolytes um no i'll just i'll just speak to the the kind of uh, experience i've had with clients um in this context so uh yeah it has it has happened on more than more than one occasion where i'll be working with somebody and they're pretty you know reasonably high level athletes and they start to notice some performance detriments um you know the energy levels and kind of just ability to train hard and perform um and and kind of feeling weak you know and when they're trying to like lift or, or whatever it is uh they're the usual signs of this and then if we look at it it's like okay you're eating a super clean diet you know quote unquote clean where they're essentially eating no processed foods. Um, so all their food intake is coming from, you know, fruits and vegetables and lean protein sources um, that are, and it's all prepared, you know, at home uh, by them. Um, and, you know, things like, you know, potatoes and, and sweet potatoes and, you know, rice or whatever. Basically it ends up being a very low sodium diet. And, and, that, and that's why they start to notice these performance detriments. Um, it, because they're just not consuming enough sodium and then when we add that back in in, in higher quantities and like like you said there it doesn't actually take very much but we just get them to salt their food a bit more and then suddenly they feel like jesus my, my performance has come along uh you know several times uh compared to what it was and um, i have had issues with people again not not very often but i have seen this before in practice and uh, i mean you coach enough people and you start to see you'll see things at least once or twice you know um but hyponatremia uh i can think of one example where a girl she only like weighing around like just under 60 kilos but she was drinking like five six liters of fluids a day all right she's just chronically uh you know had a basically a water bottle essentially taped to her hand 
Um, and then she was drinking lots of herbal teas and drinking, you know, a few coffees as well. And she was starting to get symptoms of hyponatremia, you know, fatigue, dizziness, headaches, um, even some uh, like digestive issues. Um, and I, I, you know, when we assess this, it's like, hey, look, you just need to, you need to stop drinking so much fluids because you, you don't need that much fluids. You're drinking like more than twice what would be recommended um, for you at that body weight. And, you know, you need to add some, and she was also eating super clean, right? And is eating super clean because um, it's kind of has issues with, you know, eating unhealthy foods or whatever. Um, but once we essentially rectified her fluid intake and, and got her consuming a bit more sodium, then all of a sudden she felt great. Right. So it's, uh, it does happen. Um, so that's just a warning, like not to overconsume fluids. Again, this is, this is the, very much the minority of people that are going to be eating too clean and drinking too much fluids that they're going to experience hyponatremia where they're actually not, they don't have enough sodium in their body versus the amount of fluids that they're consuming. Um, but yeah, I think that's, uh, that's about it is you're going to give us some kind of decent metrics for looking at this stuff for athletes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So again, as I say, like you can monitor your hydration in a multiple, in, in a couple of different ways. Um, and then you can obviously discern, right. Do I actually need to add a little bit of salt uh, to my food or maybe if it's, you know, in the case of you're not, you don't feel like you're getting enough potassium, low salt, increased fruit, fruit and veg intake. Do you need to add an electrolyte supplement, et cetera? Like I think an electrolyte supplement for most athletes bar maybe like, you know, if you are a power lifter that trains in Alaska, you know, in a <laughs> freezing cold environment where you just do like short bursts of effort, you know, in that context, yeah, it's probably not going to be super important for you to be uh, thinking about electrolytes. But let, let's say you're an ultra marathon runner and you, you do those desert runs. Yeah, electrolytes and water is going to be pretty damn important for you. Um, but just as a, as a kind of a baseline to monitor your hydration as an athlete, because it's a kind of the where we've moved, we've moved away from general public health guidelines um, and over to, to athletes, obviously, just to, to, to make sure that's clear. Um, you know, you can monitor your, your hydration through looking at your pee. Uh, so if it is a pale yellow or transparent color, generally means that you are hydrated. Um, if it's obviously yellow or brown, it means you're dehydrated. But B vitamins um, can create a bit of a, an issue there because they can sort of create a bit of a yellow tinge to your pee as well. So just consider that as well, just in case, because there, there is going to be, that is going to happen to some people. Um, second thing that you can do if you're an athlete to, to, to measure your hydration, that's, that's a lot more specific, is to measure your, your to actually weigh yourself before you um, train. So, you know, weigh, weigh yourself right before your training session, then weigh yourself after and also make sure you've weighed the amount of fluid that you're that you're having so like a liter is obviously going to be uh in around a kg uh, so if you have like two liters of, of fluid during your training make sure you add the two kg after um and then that will generally give you an idea of right how much fluid have i lost through my sweat um, and that's fairly reliable even though you're obviously going to lose a little bit of uh, water vapor from like breathing and stuff like that it's still fairly reliable to, to, to use this method of weighing yourself before training sessions then weighing yourself after plus the amount of fluid that you ingest during your training session um, and then that can kind of give you an idea of right how much am i actually sweating um, and then obviously if you're sweating quite a lot it may be prudent for you to add a little bit of an electrolyte supplement um, or even just a little bit like 
you can make your own simple stuff as i say a little bit of orange juice with maybe a half a teaspoon or a teaspoon of salt and um, that's a very simple way of, of making an electrolyte drink um coconut water is pretty good coconut water is really good it's it's very high in potassium as well um milk, milk really re- milk is like one of my favorite post-training recommendations for athletes because it has protein from a recovery perspective it also has carbohydrates to uh, replenish your glycogen stores which is generally the source of fuel you're going to be using for your training and then it also has a uh, sodium and a good hit of potassium in there as well so it's helping you get and rehydrated fluid. so it's yeah and the fluid as well like so it's really really good uh milk overall is is uh, the most hydrating uh drink of um the vast majority of drinks that I think are studied and I'd have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. Yeah, um, that's, about, right. that's by virtue of just the, the fluid, the electrolytes, but also the, the carbohydrates as well. That's going to, to help um, with that. And that's another reason why an isotonic sports drink can be useful during your training um, as well. Like if you are sweating a lot in a hot environment for training for long periods of time, isotonic sports drinks um, can, can be useful to just like take hundred to 200 ml sips um, and that that can be quite useful because they're going to have the electrolytes and some glucose in there for for, for hydration um and isotonic by the way is just basically it means that the concentration of molecules um in the sports drink is kind of similar to what would be in your 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 blood basically so that's just the the definition of isotonic um and then obviously if you feel like right i'm a (laughs) i'm an ultra marathon runner doing ultra marathons in the desert then you obviously need to take this more to the extreme end of things and think, right, I'm going to be losing a lot of fluids here. I'm going to be losing a lot of electrolytes as a consequence of that. Um, you know, I think there's, uh, there's some studies where they, they, if they found that there was, I'm not sure hundred percent on this, but 17 grams of so of salt was the amount of a uh, salt sodium, uh, that was actually lost during some particular studies that was done i could be wrong on that i'm not 100 percent sure i'd have to fact check that but i think it was something outrageous like that like that is kind of at the extreme end of of uh, how much sodium you can actually lose and um, if you're mm. training hard so again if you're a power lifter in alaska <laughs> and you're only doing short bursts of effort and you're doing it in a cool environment this is probably not too much of a consideration especially if you eat a normal diet with normal amounts of sodium and potassium but as you sort of move along that gradient, if we think of like, right, the training gets more intense, you become a sweatier person by virtue of your genetics, um, and you start to train in hotter environments, then you need to think about this discussion of water and electrolytes a little bit more. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the key with that. Um, and one final thing that I wanted to say as well before we... Um, before I let you jump in and we'll, we'll probably close up now in, in, in a moment, but when it comes to post-hydration, um, it's, it's actually better, especially if you are doing some of these sports in a hot environment where you're losing a lot of fluid, it's actually not enough. If you do your, if you weigh yourself before and then after plus the fluid you consumed, it's actually not enough, enough to just replace a kilo that you lost with another liter. It seems to be better to do 1.5 times that. So if you weigh, if you do the sweat loss weighing method and you lose two kilos, it's actually going to be better for you to do. Uh, one, uh, two times 1.5 and um, so 150 uh, percent of, of what you uh, lost that seems to be a better way of hi- hydrating yourself in combination with these electrolytes so you know again milk orange juice 
maybe a bit of an electrolyte supplement or even something as simple as, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're having a post-workout meal fairly quickly after that, throw in a little bit of extra salt um, on top of your food to just help with that rehydration process. Yeah. Yeah. So that means if you establish that you lost a kilo uh, during the training session, then you're going to want to consume 1.5 to 2 liters of fluids, right? Just in, yeah. in, pra- in practical terms. Um, just one uh, thing to keep in mind when doing that sweat loss weighing, um, you, need to, you need to take off most of your clothes and towel off a little bit um, in the post weighing because basically like if you're sweating, like obviously your, your whatever clothes you're wearing when training, they're going to be sodden and they're going to be heavier than when you started so so even if you weighed yourself clothed at the start you know your clothes aren't soaked at that point but then they are afterwards which will make you appear heavier than you might be so um you should uh you know take your top off take your shorts off uh towel towel yourself off a bit take off the, the residual sweat that could be on your body um and then weigh yourself uh just to get the, the most accurate assessment of that um because I can see that that's that's where people sometimes go wrong with this stuff. Um, but yeah, I think otherwise that's pretty clear. Um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna finish up now in uh, a couple of minutes. I just wanted to speak briefly on um, hypotension. Um, is there anything you want to add uh, on the like athletic context before we move on to that? No, I think that's it's you know was a. Like if you're athletes, also forgot to mention, if you are someone that's in the military or if you have a very physical job, again, consider this as well. Like if you are a laborer or something like that, or if you're in the military and you're in working in hot, humid conditions for long periods of time, it could be also a good idea for you to think about this uh, extra fluid and electrolyte slash sodium uh, as well, uh, because obviously you're going to be in that a group of people that is sweating more and thus yeah. losing some of these uh, electrolytes. So just forgot to mention that as well, but no, uh, yeah. no, that's everything. So yeah, you have to look at your activity levels. You have to look at your lifestyle um, and then, and then take those things into consideration that we've talked about. Like, I don't think, you know, you don't need to be randomly supplementing with electrolytes. Um, you need to say, okay, what's my diet look like? How, what does my activity look like? And then using that as like proxy for you know, sweating essentially, or what does my job look like as you're saying there? Um, and then start to make, like make some of these decisions for yourself. Um, so then just to speak briefly on the hypotension side of things. So if hypertension is where you've elevated blood pressure and hypotension is where you've uh, low blood pressure um, and was it orthostatic hypotension where they're looking at when you get up from like a lying down position and then basically standing and and going about your day. Like, you know, if you experience a big drop in blood pressure there, um, there are certain recommendations to increase your sodium intake. Um, But as I was looking at kind of Alan's content on this, uh, it's, there's no real long-term data on, on doing this. So I think the, the sodium recommend or the, yeah, the salt recommendations go up to like, you know, six to 10 grams, or six to nine grams per day in this context, or maybe even up to 12 um, to help rectify this, but that there's there's no real long-term data on this to say, okay, is that actually going to, you know, come back to bite you down the line? Um, 
so it's it's not as maybe not as simple as saying like oh well if i have hypotension then i should just consume tons of salt you know not necessarily uh, like i said we don't have like a really good answer for that as it stands um but there you know you have to to factor that in and you know potentially yeah you consume a little bit more salt than normal so like if like if the recommendations are five to six grams a day or less then yeah maybe you work in that like six to nine grams or something like that but again that's that's not really for us to uh intervene on like that's probably more appropriate for a doctor to uh to work on but yeah just to just to make this a comprehensive and complete discussion um because obviously there are people out there who have hypotension so and um, wanted to make sure we factor that in as well yeah yeah no it's all good stuff like i think to summarize this all together the general recommendation of five to six grams of salt per day and trying to not go over that uh, chronically, you know, for long periods of time in combination with, so you want to make sure that, you know, ideally you would be below that in combination with getting your potassium intake, you know, your 35 to 4,700 milligrams per day through mostly fruit and veg, but also through uh, supplementation of low salt if you want. Um, so that's generally a good guideline in terms of a health perspective. And then there's obviously the, the extra considerations around if you're an athlete or somebody that is exerting themselves quite often for long periods of time in a hot environment and you also are sweaty. So there's extra considerations there that sort of go against the general health recommendations. So those are the two things to consider. Um, and then obviously, as Brian said, uh, about the other end of the spectrum with hypo um, tension as well. Um, but yeah, I think that's fairly, fairly comprehensive in terms of uh, the things that are worth discussing and also the things that's within our wheelhouse you mentioned kind of the medical side of things you could you know we could get gary or nicola on to talk about like ace inhibitors and, and, and all this kind of medications that people would would take if they had high blood pressure but that's obviously not something that was is within our scope of practice so you know again maybe we could get some of them to talk on about uh, on the, the podcast sometime to talk about medications and in, in this realm of cardiovascular disease that could be interesting um but yeah hopefully that answered your question faker if you're listening he he, he better be listening now that we've done this whole <laughs> podcast for him now. so be very annoying now if you're not listening fake right yeah <laughs> but uh, yeah have you had anything to add before we sign off Brian? no no just on that point that um yeah if you do have topics that you would like us to cover um or things you wonder about from a nutrition standpoint and they could be podcast worthy then uh, you can absolutely let us know um and then just to lead us out uh you know so we we made reference to lots of different populations in this podcast. We talked about the general population and their health. Uh, we talked about athletes and their performance. Uh, we talked about, you know, specific cases in athletes uh, and, and gen pop as well with like not consuming enough sodium. So that's your point to the fact that we work with a lot of people on these kind of topics, you know, helping people improve their health, helping people improve their performance help people improve their body composition. So building more muscle uh, and losing more fat tissue, if that's what they want to do. Also help people with improving their relationship with food. So they don't have, you know, basically, you know, fear of maybe consuming processed foods or things like that. Um, help people with binge eating issues, help people with uh, PCOS, help people with digestive issues like IBS. You know, if any of that stuff applies to you, potentially we, myself and Dean, um, can help you with those things if you want to engage in the, the coaching process that we have to offer, right? So uh, it's fantastic coaching service. Um, 
obviously, obviously I'm extremely biased, but I am on one side of the coaching process and I can see how good it is. Okay. And, and the testimonials uh, will convince you if, if I am not convincing enough. So check out testimonials on our social media, check out testimonials on our website, which is triagemethod.com, find the nutrition coaching section there. And um, yeah, you know, if, if, if you want help with this stuff, uh, we do have coaching spaces available um, and you can follow all the relevant links that Dean will leave in this podcast or on our social media pages in our bios and our link trees, etc. cetera, um, to find out more about that, potentially apply for coaching. If you apply for coaching, then I will have a free consultation with you to talk about what we can actually do for you. Make sure that we're the right people to help you in the first place. You know, good chance that we are, but very, very seldomly it does happen that I'd say, no, I don't think we're actually a good fit to work together. Um, so it's not a just let's take on anybody and everybody. Uh, you know, we want to deliver an excellent service and get excellent results that will last you forever. Um, so if that sounds good, you can apply for coaching. I'll have a chat with you on Zoom and uh, we can take it from there. So that is it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for the questions um, again. So uh, until next time, Dean. Thanks, guys. Catch you in the next one. Peace.